Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. Pretty much stalked my next guest at various podcast conferences, attempting to convince her we would be homies. I'm hoping she fell for it. Nishat Kurwa is the VP and executive producer of audio for Vox Media. She leads podcasting across Vox Media's house of editorial brands and its network of outside partners. She oversees programming strategy new show development, and the Vox Media Studios podcast production team. They have over 150 active shows from daily news and policy to tech and business to culture and sports. Let me put it this way. Nishat knows her stuff and she really is an OG in the audio world. I actually just had a chance to meet with her this past week at podcast movement in Vegas. So that was awesome. And I'm excited to share her episode. I hope you guys enjoy my interview with Nishat Kurwa. Talk to me a little bit about your journey at Vox, meaning how did it start? And did you expect to end up in the position you are now? I did not expect necessarily to end up where I was now because when I came to the company, the company didn't have a podcast business. So I got here in 2017 out of more than a decade in both public and commercial radio, mostly in public media had been where I'd spent my formative years on up through before I came to my Vox Media, I was running digital at a big public radio business show. And at that moment, a lot of public media was looking to digital strategy and thinking about how they could expand their audiences into digital. It, there was a moment, I think, of fear that a lot of people were experiencing who had built their careers in radio that they were starting to, that, that it wasn't clear necessarily what their path forward would be if they were interested in innovation and growing audiences and seeing public radio audiences convert and evolve from what they had been. And so at this crossroads, I was like, love public radio, love running digital or thinking about digital strategy for it. And the place where it merges, I think, is podcasting. I had been with an organization for many years earlier in my career called Youth Radio that was always on the cutting edge of what was happening, not just in public media, but in digital media as well working with young people. And so when I came to Vox Media, as I was saying, there was not a podcast business per se. Vox Media, for those who don't know, is an umbrella brand for many editorial brands, including probably some of your faves, SB Nation, The Verge, Polygon, Eater, Vox.com. In recent, more recent years, we've acquired New York Magazine and Epic as well, and recently merged with Group Nine, so a lot of other brands like Now This and Pop Sugar. At the time that I joined, the three brands here that were most invested in podcasting were Vox.com, The Verge, and Recode, which was our technology brand started by Kara Swisher. And the the editors in chief of all those brands had podcasts that they were the hosts of. They were very invested in. They they saw the promise of how responsive their fans were to those podcasts. I think the company saw that some of our leadership is spending a lot of time doing podcasting. We need to take this more seriously. And so we, they brought me on to both focus on streamlining all of the business infrastructure of our podcast at the time, and then also to think about what the future was going to look like, best practices. But we, there wasn't a strategy in place when I arrived. And so we started with the business infrastructure and very soon we started talking to potential partners in the industry. And the first significant new show to come out of a partnership was that we par partnered with Stitcher to create Today Explained, which is Vox.com's daily news show. 
So this was like the first audio first show that I got to help build here. And we had to go out in the world and look for the best rising audio talent. And I had known from my public radio days, Sean Ramasharam, who is now our host of Today Explained, which is a singular news show and my daily news habit. And they created something really beautiful that has grown and grown as one of our biggest properties. So that was the company's first foray into any kind of narrative audio. And since then, we podcast across formats. We have a lot of talk shows. We have a lot of interview shows that are quite popular. And we also have some narrative shows, one of which is produced out of my team called Land of the Giants. And so going back to your earlier question, the industry has changed so dramatically even since I've been here. Podcast listenership has grown significantly year over year. Podcast advertising revenue is growing. It's been a really healthy and successful business. And I feel really privileged not only to have been to have gotten, first of all, to have come from many years in public radio, really thinking about the craft of making radio, working with great hosts and talent, and also getting here at a time when the business was nascent and having these incredible brands at our company to work with and experiment with and very entrepreneurial leadership that really wanted to experiment with different formats. didn't feel saddled or pressured by what podcasting had been and and having really talented journalists. So most of our podcasts are either hosted by journalists or journalism adjacent. They're all high quality shows that we think are some of the best in their category. And I get to work with them in myriad ways, which is one of the joys of my job. I'm on both the editorial and the business side, which is uncommon in our field. I use the term all the time, and I'm sure you've heard this, that it's still the wild, wild west. And that's why it's really exciting for all of us, me being on the indie side, you being more with the corporate side, but it still feels new and exciting for everyone. And it's not... I'm, t- I'm speaking for you, but from what I've heard, it's not a nine to five job, right? It, it's always ever evolving. And so I can see how it feels entrepreneurial. And it feels like that, I think, for all of us in all sectors of the podcast industry. And the third thing that I was thinking when you were talking about is I've met a lot of people from radio that have moved on to podcasting. Has there been people in radio that still don't accept podcasting as a medium that are so radio driven and obsessed and that's been their kind of platform that haven't evolved into podcasting. Absolutely right. Very keen insight. I think for a long time, public radio felt stagnant, especially to young people, to young people of color, that there wasn't room for them to grow and rise either as hosts or as prominent leadership within the industry. And so the opportunity that podcasting presented was for not only for creativity to expand what the beyond the confines of just the radio clock and the limited number of shows that can be on radio, but to allow a lot more people to make a place for themselves in the industry than had been possible under the strictures of the radio industry. And less so now that every radio station has also had to expand pretty much into podcasting because that's where their future listenership is going to be, or they're going to find new listeners for sure. But I think there is an ongoing tension. Obviously, the talent flows back and forth. You have radio talent that also has podcasts, as it is seen as an expansion of the radio business in many cases for radio stations and radio networks. But I think there still is a tension when it comes to the conventions of radio and the conventions of podcasting, the notion of how creativity can grow and expand in both of these mediums. I also think there are interesting distinctions between what hosts do on the radio and what hosts do in podcasting, because of course, terrestrial radio audiences are captive audiences to an extent, right? So if you have, let's imagine a radio network that for many years has had the same hosts on and they decide to introduce new hosts to their audiences. Audiences are habituated around how they listen to the radio if they haven't yet crossed over to podcasting, planting some of that listening. So they have their habits. They wake up in the morning, they turn on the radio with their coffee. They get in the car, they drive to work if they're still driving to work and they have their public radio or commercial radio news on. They have favorite hosts that they follow. However, if a new host gets swapped in on your midday news show, You might flinch a little bit. You might be like, oh, I don't love them as much as girlfriend who was on here. 
but you're probably going to stay with the habit. Whereas in podcasting, the pressure to remain fresh and innovate is much higher because people habituate around their favorite shows. And a lot of that has to do with the host. This is this is all relative depending right. on format. Obviously, some formats are more conducive to having hosts cycle in and out. And if you've built a really strong show with a cast of characters, whether that be the host and producers and you're training like a like an SNL talent. kind of thing, like song in love with Yeah, them. yeah, yeah. Depend right. it, it all depends on the show. So certainly there are shows where you can bring in new hosts and new talent and you're going to continue to keep your listeners. But it is different than radio in that way. I think there's a much higher tolerance with radio listeners to to hear different hosts and and in podcasting, maybe right. not so much. But to go back to your question about the tensions, radio is a lot. They have these entrenched business models, entrenched listenerships. It still can feel, I think, to a lot of podcasters like radio is slow to change. And podcasting, because of the dynamism involved in the industry that absolutely agree with you, is still nascent, but is expanding so rapidly, it, it just provides so much more choice for listeners. And so I think podcasters have to be on their game in different ways. And podcasting is more likely to advantage multimedia right. formats for promotion, for collaboration. It's just better poised to do that. And again, radio is entrenched in its old practices. And I think they can sometimes feel like a very siloed industry in ways that podcasting totally. does I not. think it, it make podcasting is is moving with the times because I think the key word is choice. There's choices with streaming and TV and movies out. Podcasting offers that where radio cannot. And nowadays you have to have choices in order to succeed as a platform. Yeah. One thing that I think is, maybe this is too much minutia, but in terms of, I think a lot about training, staffing, right. and employing people. A lot of what I do is working with people who are either at all stages of their career in audio and all different roles. And as I mentioned, a lot of my earlier career was spent with mentoring as a, as a, as a very central part of my role and my mission. And it is interesting that because podcasting is still a young industry. There has been a flood of talent coming into it, both from radio, but also from different areas of journalism and people who are coming in from music production, everywhere. engineering, yep. which is everywhere, which is great. That's exactly what we want to see. That is, again, right where radio could have felt constraining. And at the same time, what many folks aren't coming in with is a deep, breadth of ex or deep and wide experience in doing the job that they have been thrown into or jumped into. And so I do see a gap right. in skill sets and people being thrown into the deep end of the pool is, you know, how a right. lot of us learned and I think is great. And you and and reporters do young reporters do it all the time. They're just like one day they're in the studio, next day they're out in the field and they are learning how to field report on the fly. This happens for hosts all the time. So there is a lot that about that experience that can be positive. I think the way that I learned to produce and to manage was very much through a long period of mentorship and a lot of shadowing. I had a great mentor, Rebecca Martin at Youth Radio, who down to composing emails to our colleagues at NPR, like I shadowed her and learned how to do it, like sitting next to her. And I, it's interesting watching how, because podcasting is moving so quickly, there's not often either the opportunity for younger folks getting industry, getting into the industry to have that. And also there are a lot of podcast shops that don't offer that because they themselves are so new. Yeah. One on the staff might be new to audio. And so there is, I think, some kind of craft lineage being lost yeah. in that. And it has interesting, interesting effects on the quality of production that you hear, even coming out of more august or legacy journalism shops that really pride themselves on great journalism. Their audio isn't often what it should be at, on par with the other. Right, right. I, well, I always tell everyone this. I have basically built a, my own education the past two and a half years out of podcasting because although I've worked in radio and have written for magazines, like this is a whole new medium for me. So I've had to teach myself and just network and teach yeah. and learn and make a hundred mistakes. And luckily I love it enough to keep going, but it, it is, it's, it's if yeah. you haven't been part of it or don't have the background for it. 
takes a lot of grit, I think, to stick with it and really learn and produce the content and the show that will will become something. I know you you work on new show development for audio for Vox Media. When you're looking at new shows, I know you have to look at the host, the content, the the what what the show is about. Is it the whole package? Is there one thing you look at first that makes you fall in love with it? And then again, what show, what podcast show made you fall in love with podcasting? Two different questions, but I just oh, wanted wow. to get that out. Great question. Yeah. In terms of when I look at a show, I mean, there's definitely a framework for how we evaluate shows. And you're right. A lot of it is the host, although not entirely. It depends on the format of the show, because if the show is very host driven, host centric, an interview show, a chat show, it is all about the host or hosts and the chemistry and charisma that they bring. So often I ask people when we're evaluating shows, would you want to hang out with this person? Because that's what makes it sticky, right? That's what makes someone habituate to a podcast. You are giving, as you mentioned, like attention economy, very fragmented, lots of demands on our time. And of course, podcasting is often hailed for being something that you can do in the background. And I think that's partially true. Again, it's all relative, depends on the show, depends on what you're getting out of the show. For a news show, then you want to really absorb the information for a highly philosophical or intellectual show, our show, The Gray Area. I don't listen to that when I have other things going on. I like to give my full attention to the show. Other shows, chatty shows, you can have them on in the background and it is like hanging out in your living room with some homies. And so for those kinds of shows, the talk shows, I do think host chemistry is, is a primary concern and filter. And then there are other shows where the conceit really matters. And by conceit, of course, a concept behind the show and it's how singular it is. So is it unlike anything else out there in the podcast landscape? And that can be because of a lot of things that can be because of the host perspective. That can be, again, about the ensemble and what they've put together. That can be about beautiful production. That can be about the story that you find if it's a narrative podcast. So I do think being singular matters a lot when you're trying to find new audience Over time, certainly a show's conceit can change once it already has a loyal audience who's there for kind of whatever journeys you might go on. So it's not to say that a show should be static and fixed in its conceit. But I think initially when you're launching, it is really important to ask that question. How is this going to both transcend or eclipse or be like nothing else on the marketplace? And then to look at your competitors. What is in my space, whether that is because of my target audience, subject matter, category, et cetera, that is is my competitor and how do I measure up next to them? So those are all things that I'm looking at. And then, yeah, host can see format, originality. And I do care a lot about production values, but coming from public radio, I have said this before, I think podcasters especially narrative podcasters, can get a little too precious about production values. And the fact is that when you're talking about less highly produced shows, I don't think listeners, listeners have a very high tolerance for what I think a lot of narrative shows would consider a lower quality. It's about the information and the feeling. And so, and I, and I do think that is great in terms of a lower bar for entry for people doing it DIY because it takes a long time to get all of the technical for stuff sure. right. But if you have the content and you're a great hang or great informationally, people are going to come and stay. Mm-hmm. I think all that's important. And then the first show in the early days, pre-podcasting, I was part of an independent production company there were just a handful of us that worked around the edges of public media. They included groups like the Kitchen Sisters, Radio Diaries. There was a lot of great stuff coming out of the CBC and the BBC. And where I worked was called Youth yep. Radio. And it told stories of teenagers. Adult producers and journalists worked side by side with teenagers to create these stories that would tell youth lot that would tell the stories of youth lives from okay. a youth perspective. And us and all of these other independent groups did not have outlets. Podcasting didn't exist or wasn't, or was still nascent And when a lot of these groups were founded. And we would all convene annually at conferences like the Third Coast Festival and 
play audio for one another and listen to the most dynamic and cutting edge avant-garde experimentational stuff that was out there. And so a lot of the work that those folks were doing, as I said, podcasting didn't exist this at like, the time. This is like OG stuff. Those, <laughs> it was real OG. But, but, the, but those ended up certainly paving the way for the freedom right. in especially narrative podcasting and the diversity of narrative podcasting today. So things like, as I mentioned, Radio Diaries would hear stories, personal stories from individuals whose stories wouldn't otherwise be accommodated or there wouldn't be space for them to be told in a creative first person way on terrestrial radio, but you could, right. you could certainly hear them in podcasting. Actually, there was a period in my career, the end of my career at Youth Radio and going into the places I went next where I was reporting on tech. This was 1.0 era in the Bay Area. And so I was really interested in and aware of tech reporters. And so I think probably the first podcast I listened to regularly was actually Kara Swisher's, Re Kara Swisher's Recode Decode, which was an interview podcast. Kara is a legendary right. tech journalist. And, and I ended up coming to the company, of course, where her podcast was launched from, which was Vox Media. She launched it after Recode joined Vox Media. And it was so unlike the kinds of very rigid, sometimes predictable interviews you would hear on the radio. And it really, it really sought out voices that you might not hear elsewhere. And then it was all from this vantage of somebody who had been in tech for reporting on tech for 20, 30 years. So that was probably the earliest. Wow, that's amazing. Um, and now my podcast diet okay. is a mix of, of course, a lot of our shows are my favorite shows today. Explain, Pivot with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway, the show that I started with the hosts and it's still one of my favorite podcasts, although I don't okay. produce it any longer. We also have This Is Love mm -hmm. under our umbrella from, from the team at Criminal, and that's a beautiful show that I love. Um, I also have been really interested to see Places like NPR, bringing on younger talent to do shows yeah. like Throughline. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know that show, but I love that show. And I also listened to, early in my career, I was involved in hip-hop radio, hip-hop commercial radio. And so that still constitutes a lot of my listening. I listen to shows like Drink Champs and What Had Happened <laughs> Was, which are kind of tales from the annals of the golden era of hip-hop. I listen to a lot of poetry podcasts, which are like digestible, quick couple of minutes Early in the morning when everything is quiet around me, it's a like lovely way it to come is, into yeah. the day. And and I still listen to a lot of tech That's amazing. I well. actually just met Rupi Kaur at Sundance. Oh, yeah. And I'll be honest with you, never really got into poetry before. My poetry is like music, my, my music. And she performed live for the South Asian Lodge. I was like, yep. oh, shit, this is I got emotional. Like it was different in audio, right? Yeah. When you're hearing it, it delivered. Powerful. And not that I didn't have respect for her. I just didn't really pay attention. I knew she was all amazing. Like, I knew her name and how big she was. It was like a 12 minute, 15 minute performance. And I was like, why do I have tears in my eyes? Like, how is this happening? So I just, it, I don't know, it sounds so silly, but it's like well, the power of poetry. To... I was like, wow. wow. It was amazing. I think that speaks to maybe some tropes that are true about audio, which is the oh, intimacy yeah. and the power of having somebody's voice in your ear and being able to hear the timber of it and to you wake up with it it's a part of your day that is so, so different than i think it's an emotional core consume. like no other for sure and, and my answer is the typical one the podcast that pulled me in but the exciting part of it all was that i got to interview rabia Chaudhary on my 75th episode and i was just like at that i think it really hit me at that point i was like oh okay i can do this and i think her story is really yeah. interesting in terms of like talking about indie podcasters because she, oh, I think very smartly is that this format could be a venue to tell her own side of the story. She yeah. went for it. And I think as a growing audience. Yeah, so it is really nice. She was, she was amazing to talk to. And my best friend every day, who I think is my best friend, is Dax Shepard, still to this day. It becomes so intimate. Like, I know everything about the show, him and Monica, and I feel like I'm part of their family. And they are doing what podcasts are supposed to do. And so if I miss an episode, mm -hmm. I'm like, mm -hmm. they... wait, I'm, I'm, I'm missing what happened, what they did last week. Yeah. It's become part of my yeah. routine, like every day. Are there things that you've taken from that show and converted it has, for your own? Uh, it's odd. It's given me, I'm already an open and pretty vulnerable person. I'm not shy to tell my story and 
my quote unquote failures. And I just think listening to him has inspired me more to be, not to be nervous about certain things, just to try to be myself as much as possible. And I think it's helped me become a better interviewer. I like to listen to different interview podcasts. That's my research, right? What are people doing? I actually think Dax Shepard is one of the best interviewers out there, in my opinion. I think that's it's another cliche about podcasting, but that is another thing, obviously, that people respond to is the authenticity that they can hear yeah. in a host's voice. And it is a practice. It's not easy. Some people naturally can make themselves right. vulnerable, are naturally great conversationalists, but it it's not necessarily a thing no, that everyone sure. yeah. can do. Stating the obvious, but I think there's a misconception about podcasting that just because you happen to be a great conversationalist in your personal life, that you can also be great at podcasting and, yeah. and it's a craft and studying it in the way that you're describing is definitely yeah, no, the definitely. way. Like, okay. So are there trends in our industry that you perceive as disruptive coming up? Do you like the future of podcasting this year? And if there are these trends that are disruptive, how do we deal with them? I guess first I should say, I'm, it won't be a surprise to you that I'm bullish on podcasting. I don't see doom and gloom. I do, of course, see the headwinds that the industry is facing in terms of just the advertising challenges that are being faced across the media industry. But I think what that will mean for podcasting in part is that there will be some culling where the dumb money was going. People say that the dumb money was flowing into podcasting and it was creating bloat. So a colleague in mine, a colleague of mine and I used to joke that we were going to hand out t-shirts that said, not everybody needs to have a podcast. (laughs) And I think we were in a period where everybody felt like they needed to have a podcast as an extension of something else that they were doing. If they were primarily a print journalist or an actor or a musician or a name your profession, that it was imperative to have a podcast. And of course, being somebody that is really invested in the art of it, I think it has to be done thoughtfully. It has to be done with an intention to spend real time on it, with attention to the audience and what their needs are and the feedback that you're hearing from them. So, and and of course, there are lots of podcast hobbyists. I'm talking about people who want to launch a professional podcast as a big part of how they spend their time and connect to audiences as a business that is monetizable and profitable. And and so I think if if you're thinking of it that way, you have to be attentive to the quality. There has to be a real understanding of what audiences are looking for. We invest in and start, again, high quality shows. So when we think about hosts, they are people who have a singular expertise. They're somehow at the top of their field. They are influential. They are not going to waste a listener's time. And that can play out in lots of different ways. So I can go on for a while about how bullish I am about podcasting. But I think think what we will be seeing less of and already are seeing less of is the kind of everybody gets a podcast moment where investment is just pouring in to concepts that don't really give us much more than this is such and such famous person chatting with a friend about their lives or chatting with their circle of friends. And there's a place for those things. I just think it's going to be increasingly hard. The industry is very saturated. So, So I think winnowing to the best shows is good. I hope that that continues to mean that there's room for independent podcasters because, of course, we don't want, we want indie voices to continue to be able to come into this field and start great shows without some of the financial pressures that folks at more established publishers might feel to make it a business. So I really love hobbyist podcasting and people doing DIY stuff and experimentation. In terms of disruptive trends, The Verge, which is one of our great editorial brands here at Vox Media, just put on the Hot Pod Summit last week in New York. And it was great. It was great. It's always packed to the gills. I went last year. I lived in in Connecticut last year, so it was easier. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, you were nearby. It's, It's great. It's a great chance to get together with our peers and, of course, ever more valuable post the COVID era when a lot of the conferences that we were accustomed to going to have dwindled or reduced their frequency. So great to see people in person. And they changed the programming a little bit this year. They had a couple of big panels and then they did a lot of breakout rooms, which is part of the beauty of that that conference and and venue is people just want to get a chance to talk and schmooze and talk business. But here they really broke it down into some categories that folks really want to talk about, like video podcasting, which which, (laughs) we can talk more about that. But 
But one of the panels that I thought was interesting in terms of, or made me think in terms of disruption was there was a panel about audiobooks and podcasting and the blurring line between the two. I don't know that audiobooks are necessarily going to represent a huge disruption, but I think the thing about them that is interesting is indeed how different forms of media begin to blur into right. podcasting. Manry Film has already right. been doing that. There are There's lots of documentary stories that are told increasingly both in a podcast form and in film or TV. So that's interesting. I think the audiobook question raises interesting questions about what is right. a podcast? Is it important that podcast, that podcasting has these very clear, distinct parameters? Does it matter if the lines blur? Is it about just people spending more time with audio, which I do think is beneficial actually mm-hmm. for the whole industry, because again, it's habituating people to this way of getting their information and their entertainment and seeking out that kind of intimate, deep yeah. connection to the format. So so I think just okay. questions about what is a podcast is like an interesting and disruptive question. I don't see big programming trends that I think are going to be disruptive this year beyond, again, the kind of more conservative approach towards launching new shows, which I think actually is right. not that good. I think there is going to be potentially more of less of a flow of podcasts to film and television IP. And I think that will probably have an impact on what people decide to produce in the narrative realm. I mean, I think there was a certain moment where a lot of companies seem to be jumping into podcasting just to sell a narrative story to film studio. And I don't think that's great for podcasting. It created, first of all, it, it had a downward pressure on documentary and what documentary can be that I think is actually harmful journalistically. But aside from that, I think just stories that didn't necessarily merit seven episodes of a podcast investigation got greenlit. And and again, I'm all for right. experimentation and people trying things. But, but I also think if you're doing it because you want to sell it to TV and film, it's probably not going to be a right. strong podcast. Right. Which kind of goes into the whole, if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, you're doing it for the money. Like you really have to do it because I think like you, you want people, I want people to fall in love with audio in whatever form that is, right? It doesn't have to be my form, but I think the, the medium itself, I think you have to believe in it. Yeah, yeah the passion, passion really, really matters. matters. I remember when when I first came here, Kara Swisher used to talk about, she was doing Recode Decode and she would talk about doing the podcast and the kind of impact that she felt that felt really different to her from the response she would get to her print pieces. People would run up to her on the street and I love your podcast. Oh my gosh, Kara, I love you. And people that I don't think she had previously had in what she would consider to be her yeah. audience. Uh, younger folk were coming up to her, who had heard her on the podcast, who had formed this connection to her as a podcaster and and didn't, again, know necessarily know about or follow her print work. And so I think our best podcasters, our most successful podcasters are the ones who are really passionate about the medium and want to continue to experiment with it, are always interested in doing something new, but also can become a reliable go-to for audiences on whatever right. the category is that their podcast, whatever their expertise is. And I think that I think that being an authority is really important for podcast totally. audiences because there's so much choice, right? How do you choose what you're going to spend your time with? Um, little time. Yeah, really quickly. I, I've realized over these past two and a half years, like how important it is to have that crew of people that really believe and follow you, whether that's 10, 20, 1,000, and really love what you're doing. And I finally realized, I'm like, that's this is really cool. I have followers that just really believe in the stories I'm telling. And help me let go of, oh my God, what are the numbers? Having that army of a thousand, whatever it is, to really love the story that you're telling and you as a host, which is a freeing thought, you know, in a way as an independent podcaster. And so really quick, mentoring. You had mentioned that you mentor many young journalists, journalists of color. What are a few concerns stresses that you've been addressing as a mentor? And then, of course, since this is a South Asian podcast, how have you seen the landscape for South Asians changing in audio? Great question. So areas of concern, I think this is true for young journalists across the board, but 
as I mentioned, there is less opportunity, I think, for people to get a lot of training before taking on what might be a challenging job or role that they have previously not right. tried out. And and I think that's increased, especially true for young journalists of color, in part because, as we know, they're not their representation in the industry did not have parity with the U.S. population. Journalism is still not as racially diverse, not nearly as racially diverse as we need it to be. So that's tough. It's like you you need mentorship and you need a newsroom or a shop that is thinking deeply about your trajectory as an individual and then the trajectory and training and skill sets of a team and how you build in training and really make people feel supported to grow not just catapult them into a role that they have not had a background in and then expect them to right. hit the ground running in very challenging competitive environment and do well. And so so I think there's that as just a foundational concern. But I also think there is some issues that are more recent and some that have always been present. I think in a more, let's say in the last couple of years after the media reckoning that came after the murder of George Floyd. The media, as did many other industries, scrambled to look at the lack of racial diversity in their ranks. And in a lot of cases, I think they made very superficial decisions to cosmetically look like they had a more diverse workforce without really thinking right. about what the experience was going to be like for people. So that's a worry of mine. And I also think there is an interesting tension that I hear a lot from young people of color going into majority white shops and newsrooms, which is where is my agency in having a meaningful impact on the storytelling, on the angles that are chosen, on the way the story is told, on the voices that are featured? Am I going to end up feeling like just a cog in the wheel of a large institution that is not actually fundamentally thinking about how I can invest in and also thinking about how I am there to change the coverage that they've been doing that has left out our voices and has. So are they there just to diversify the staff? Check a, check a box, basically. On a cosmetic just level? Just check the box, a DEI. Check a box <laughs> or, or to, to check the DEI box or are they meaningfully able to impact the direction of stories and coverage? And I think for a lot of them who are newer to the industry, obviously it's really intimidating to try to not only be great at your work, but also feeling like you have to hold the diversity mm -hmm. bag and you have to be the one to speak up when the coverage is fucked up or you have to be the one. You always have that kind of double right. responsibility. And I think not only is it intimidating as a younger person trying to have that kind of impact, but you're taking a risk. It's hard and to, and to know what the venues are to do that and to both to demonstrate that you understand the requirements of the job and you're up to the task of working on the material that you're assigned and doing a great job at it in the vein of what the newsroom is doing already. And then also that you have your own ideas about how to improve it. And I think there are not always clear avenues for people to yeah. do that. Managers aren't always talking to them about what do we expect your impact to be? How do you, if you have if you see some problem with the way with our editorial policies um, or our coverage, what is the venue for you to raise that with your editor? And so I think that that kind of pressure, I've seen it really take right. a toll on young journalists. And that's that's speaking about the last two years. But again, these issues have been around yes. forever. We've always experienced these. And I'm specifically talking about newsrooms here, but this this can happen obviously in any kind of podcasting or other media shop where if you're coming into a place or an industry that has not previously take your demographic seriously as an audience or understood how to integrate you best into a newsroom and make sure you have a real seat at the table, you often end up like having to carve your own path and your own policies to do that. Like those pressures are persistent. And when I was coming up, there were a lot of ethnic okay. news organizations. I actually came up in from the very early days inside an entity that was all about ethnic news organizations. So I had a very different experience than a lot of people have had I also did work in mainstream newsrooms where I was like one mm -hmm. of just a few. So I've had both experiences, but I had great mentors. And again, was at these very innovative places that didn't look like a lot of the rest of the journalism right. industry. And so I, but, but a lot of the ethnic media organizations had a stronger presence, unfortunately, I would say in the era that I was coming up in journalism. And I'm not totally sure that young people today have the support of those kinds of entities 
or that they're responding to the needs of today's young journalists of color. Certainly they're creating Mm -hmm. their own cohorts of support and that's great and really important. But I think they also need mentors and people. You need a mix. Like you always, like a lot of the work that I did was intergenerational work, very thoughtfully concerted intergenerational work. And I think that young people aren't getting as much of that exposure. And so I hear a lot of managers bellyaching about millennials and their expectations at work. And we know that there is a generational divide there. And I think I, I, I don't share all of those opinions, but I think part of the gap is in a kind of mentorship and this exchange that helps people say, okay, this is how it was in my, when I was my formative years. And these are the ways in which your generation can, can improve things. And also these are the kinds of foundational lessons that we would suggest bringing into your experience. Awesome. Great. Sure. I mean, great, great. There's a lot to unpack there. But the, the one thing that I keep thinking that gives me hope, silver lining, is that throughout this 100 and something episodes, I've talked to many leaders like you in media that look like you, that think like you. And I feel, at least from the outside, that there are more people of color getting into these leadership positions and that's what's going to help this change. We re- That's what we really, truly need. And maybe I'm more optimistic because that's who I interview. But it does seem to me that there are more and more, and, and especially more women of color as well. And it has to change from the inside first. And it has to be le- leadership. Totally. And, and I, I don't know. I, I'm optimistic about it, considering I grew up in the 80s and never saw any of it, you know. Yeah, there wasn't any of it. Yeah, most of the newsrooms that I've ever worked in were led by white men or white women. And I think for leaders of color, it is encouraging to see more of us in the leadership ranks. And then I think there also are the pressures in a role like this. How do you uphold your own values? And for me, the values that I learned growing up inside of ethnic journalism organizations and entities and shops that really focused on marginalized voices, those values to create and focus on intentional, diverse and wide coverage. How do you that and not capitulate to the pressures, be they editorial pressures or business pressures once you are a leader inside a big organization that is influential? I think that's a constant struggle and, and balance. And you have to have a very clear compass about what your mission is and your work. And and I think continue to revisit kind of your own values and the values of the larger industry and like how you can, not only for the journalism that you do, but also for the young people that are coming up behind you, stay focused and clear, even when you're under right. all of the kinds of pressures that come along. Right. With and well. I always say this to uh, at least our community, we need to support each other more. I think there's always a, there's still an underlining, not enough room at the top for all of us situation. And I, I'm hoping, seeing slowly the community is changing with that thought process. And so brown people need the support. <laughs> okay, let's talk about growing okay. up. And, yeah. and then we'll do a quick fast round. And then I promise I'll let you go and then talk your face off next Damn. week. I'm always super jealous of people like you who I believe knew what they wanted from the get-go. Is that is that right? You went to journalism school so at least you had the idea of what area you wanted mm-hmm. to go in. And yeah. how did your family react to that at, coming from a brown family? Yeah, I always loved writing and communication and connection. I don't know that I necessarily knew as a young, young person, but I knew I wasn't going to be a math and science yeah. major for sure. STEM was not for me. So I was drawn towards the humanities and I give my family a lot of credit that at an early age, they did not apply pressure, I think partly because they had maybe some sublimated, sublimated artistic in, instinct right. of their own that they didn't pursue, but understood the passion for that. Also, my parents are some of the most progressive Desi parents I know, but I think there is a level potentially of gender, like a little bit of gender stereotyping sure. involved because I was the girl in my family. So I don't think that they were necessarily as pressed about me not doing STEM. But that being said, I was lucky to be, as I said, grew up in the Bay Area, grew up around really interesting journalism organizations that were very innovative. I grew up in youth media, which was a nascent right. field at that time. It was being foundations were supporting it. This is in the 90s. There was a lot more support for after school organizations that crossed all all different categories in the humanities. And I was exposed to all of that. 
I went to San Francisco State and actually I did major in journalism. I didn't go to a J school, but I, the great thing about San Francisco State was different than maybe like a J school at a UC. The professors that I had in the journalism department were all working journalists and a lot of them were reporters of color. So they were in newsrooms. We were getting their practical experiences in the classroom. And I really benefited from just that real world understanding of what the job was like. And I also, man, I was a hustler. Like at 14, I was working like four jobs, maybe not four, a little bit later, but like in my 20s, I was working like four jobs during college. And I very early on started interning at a music radio station. So I was the producer of this seminal hip hop public affairs show called Street Knowledge. And I was also interning and then producing at a news radio station, CBS News affiliate called KCBS. So I was getting exposed to both sides of the business. This was on the commercial side. And then while I was still in college, I started working at Youth Radio. I don't know that I necessarily had a mapped out trajectory or thought, okay, I thought in a calculated way about what these things were going to lead me to. But what I knew was that I just had a lot of energy and zeal and appetite for a lot of different experiences, for trying things out. And, And what I do credit my parents with is, at that time, there wasn't a lot of pressure, like figure it out right now. They weren't concerned. They believed they saw that I was talented and smart and they, and I think we were, I was, we were a middle class family. So the economic pressures a lot of people face coming into um, an industry wasn't there. So like I had to earn my own way, but I was content and they were content with me not having a lucrative career right out of the gate. And that time that they they gave me and they were understanding about to really experiment and dabble with a bunch of different things and figure out what I wanted to do was huge because again, I was able to work my nine to five job in the nonprofit sector, which was with Youth Radio, this amazing independent production company. But I still wanted to be in news. I was like a news junkie. So on the weekends, I would work as a editor at KCBS Radio. So I had a shift every Sunday from 5 a.m. to 1 p.m. I'd be on the news desk and you were processing all of the breaking news that came in. It was known as a breaking news station. Yeah. You were writing news and headlines for the anchors. So I got really to be a really fast editor there and I'm really grateful for that training. There were definitely things about that newsroom that contributed to me wanting to make another world for young journalists yeah. that were coming up. It was not very racially diverse. And it, there were a lot of difficulties that I think people faced if they looked like the people who were on air there, mostly mostly on air there as anchors. But yeah, I think I, re- I remember my yeah. parents saying to me, I'm sure you'll be embarrassed about this today. But at some point, someone <laughs> in the family definitely said, how long are you going to be doing this social justice bullshit? And I was uh, so taken aback. There has I'm to be like, a comment like, like so that agreed. somewhere. There like, has to be. Somewhere along the way. I was like, and I was, I was very rebellious, but I think over time they started to see what was, I think, impressive to them was like, oh, a byline. Oh, okay. We can tell people where to listen to you on the radio. I don't know that that would necessarily have been their ideal, but as they started to realize that it, it was allowing me to car, journalism was giving me a way to carve out my place and voice in the world. They Right. We're open. And they said it was making me happy. So again, very lucky to have a family that supported me. And and I did like I came up in the 90s in the Bay Area. There were a lot of youth led movements. And I, as a baby journalist, was adjacent to those movements. Street Knowledge, the show that I the show that I produced on very early on, covered systemic racism as like one of the key things kind of key coverage frameworks for all of the interviews we did. And then so I was like coming up alongside these grassroots youth movements at a time where young people were protesting against California's Proposition 209, California's 187, laws that dealt with the prison industrial complex, immigration, affirmative action. So coming up around that, I saw that I could make an impact. I wasn't necessarily going to be the activist that was out there on the front lines, but I saw that I could have an impact as a young person of color covering and communicating what was happening inside those movements to white audiences. And so that is where I felt the impact. And I think that's what got me energized about continuing to like experiment in different kinds of media. Um, I did talk shows at the time. I, I, I had this 
nine to five job, as I said, but I was always doing stuff on the side. I always had little side hustles, public radio shows. There was a show called Hard Knock Radio that that crew brought me into to do a lot of interviewing. I would do, I started a show after 9-11 that was meant to educate audiences. It was a series on KPFA radio in Berkeley that was meant to educate American audiences about Muslims in in the States and worldwide. And and I kept doing this. And and then things. Next. My guess, going back to your parents, my guess would be obviously the things you said, maybe because you're a girl. So they weren't same thing with me. But my brother became a doctor. So they're like, eh, we have at least one doctor in the family. You mentioned that you were rebellious, but I'm seeing that as maybe passionate. And my guess is that because they saw that passion, they were like, OK, like this is something she's taking seriously. Because at the end of the day, I think all of our parents and, you know, that now that I have kids, if you're going to do something, be your be the best, do, do the best you can, right? Whatever that is. I think with me and my parents, I was not doing my best and confused because I was not doing what I wanted to do. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so even though that path, the journalism, new, working in the news may be scary for Desi parents, I think at least in my case, in your case, my guess is the passion and the fact that you are working the four jobs and, and, and doing all the work. I think that's what, at the end of the day, immigrant parents really want to see. All parents. All parents. And it was so different, right? Like I had to do it through formal channels and through these entities that existed and had gatekeepers. And I think what's so encouraging for they see young people today is you can still be on that career path. Maybe it's through parental pressure. Maybe it's because you're passionate about STEM. You have always wanted to be that doctor, but but there are also so many venues speaking specifically about media, but also adjacent acting Mm -hmm. and other creative careers. You can have, I'm all about the side hustle. And I think the democratization of media is really great. Like when I think about my own experience and the experiences that we had, when there weren't as many options, I love seeing basic creators just try stuff. I I interviewed, I have a newsletter that focuses on women of color. And one of my early interviews with Lily Singh when she was just doing her YouTube channel. And I just, first of all, it was great to see the beacon that she was for a lot of basic kids. I remember when I interviewed her, she talked a lot about how not only did people love the skits that she did where she enacted her parents as her primary characters, but that a lot of young, she had been vocal at the time about mm-hmm. the mental health issues that she had had and depression that she experienced. And she said she was getting tons of letters from young women, young South Asian women, young women of all races, who said how much, yeah. how important it was for them to or talk about that on this YouTube channel that obviously started small. She grew in a very grassroots right. way. And I think that that, that is a big generational shift that I'm really happy to see for young South Asians who might want to dabble in being a quote unquote creator and trying out their comedy on the side, trying out making a web series, doing a podcast. I think it's great. And I really encourage it. And I certainly don't think everybody has to have four side hustles, but I do think if you've got that creative itch and you are on a different track professionally, it is worthwhile. We need more material, more content coming from the South Asian experience. Obviously, it's been incredible to see all of the expansion, especially in film and TV from South Asian writers, directors, actors. But but you can see in the response to some of the, especially the content that's focused on YA and the teen years, like young people are. are hungry for that. And so seeing a diversity of stories and experiences come from young South Asians makes me feel encouraged. And I just always tell folks like, just yeah. try things. It's like, the time it to try like, things. It's the time to stick to one career, which it's been a while now, but like to stick to the one thing and do it for 40 years is gone now, right? It's gone. And and the options are, the options, yeah. choices, right? The, the keyword is choice is there for South Asians. And because I came up in legacy media, I think I was a lot more, I felt something that it turned out not to be true, which is that there was this pressure to make everything perfect before I ever put it out yeah. to the public. And and I think, and and I would love for them to feel that pressure right. relieved. You can you can try a thing. It can be messed up. It can be dumb. And take it down later. It doesn't have to be part of your digital footprint. It's forever, right. obviously. So uh, definitely still want people to be cautious and aware of that. But if you decide to do a web series and you hate it, it can come down. And it's not going to, and, and people it's understand. It's not going to destroy your career. Like, that you'll be fine. You right, right. Totally. You'll be fine. Totally love it. All right. Describe yourself in one word. Passionate. What is your biggest pet peeve? Bad grammar. <laughs> I think I'm turning into that too. 
And mouth noise. Hey, what'd you say? What was it? <laughs> and mouth noise. Mouth you noise. said one. You can, you said, can name a few. Yeah. I, that's totally fine. No, no, it doesn't have to be limited to one. How do you want to be remembered by the people around you? Friends, family, colleagues? As someone who was generous in extending herself to like really invest in the people that I love and that I want to see grow again as a mentor and somebody who is like invested in the next generation. That can mean many things, both professionally and personally. And as someone hella fun who read the Bay Area all <laughs> the way. It. Oh, we got to do Bay Area stories. How do you define success now? I've reached a point both professionally and personally where I am so grateful for every moment that I get around the inspiring people in my life. And that to me is the the consistency of that in all different areas of my life, professionally, personally, with my family. That is my success. I really, really love the work that I do. I love the combination, as I said, of being able to work on editorial and journalistic material, being able to work with hosts. I have a great team and also everything that I'm continuing to do on the business side of the Vox Media Podcast Network and kind of the growth there. We've had a really successful trajectory in growing the business and and I'm and and it's always I've always been entrepreneurial and interested in the business side from my early days covering tech. And so I have the best balance of those two things in my job currently. And I'm really happy with that. So that sort of represents success to me. Like I get to do both of the things I'm great at, both the editorial side of my work and the business side and deepen my work in both of those realms. And success is also having having a group of, of young people that I am advising or supporting that they continue to see something in me to, to come for advice and and coaching and guidance. I hope to always have those connections. And then personally, yeah, personally success. I've been really lucky. Our family is very close and being able to, my brother just got married last year, the family grow and continuing to maintain our closeness, even though we are on opposite sides of the country is really great. And then I have a wonderful group of friends as well here and in the Bay. So Maintaining those kind of old connections from my years growing up in the Bay and then the really important circle that I've developed in New York. All of that is success to me. What more can you ask for, my friend? What do you think makes you memorable? Great question. The people who know me would probably say I'm singular in my range of influences in terms of the people that have shaped my life, the people and cultures that have shaped my life. So I think I'm deeply steeped in, of course, like my Desi and Mm -hmm. home culture, but also, as I said, growing up in the Bay Area around people who led movements and, and are highly entrepreneurial, artistic and intellectual, all of that, like Bay Area hip hop hasn't been as influential to me (laughs) as, um, my, background in our Desi community. So I think that kind of confluence, like certainly there are, there are some folks who have grown up with a range of influences that I've had, but I think I am single, singular in my influences and, and references. And I think that is something that when I find other people in the world like that, it does feel like, oh my gosh, we found like a needle in a haystack. I love that. But I think that makes me. I, love, I yep. agree. Last question. If you were an indie podcaster and you were to start, produce, and host your own show, what would it be called? Oh, this is a kind of a cheat because I have a newsletter called okay. Talk Story. Talk Story comes from Pigeon Hawaiians. It's like sitting around, shooting the shit, telling stories. And the newsletter is not okay. exactly that. It is focused on dynamic women of color who lead. It's both interviews and stories that I love. So I think it would be a podcast version of that. Love it.
All right, it's decided. I'm going to make her become my mentor. It is just so exciting to see South Asian women in these positions at media companies because that's exactly what we need to change the conversation, guys. Please check out all the podcasts on the Vox Network. I personally have been enjoying the Land of Giants, sorry, Land of the Giants, and also Today Explained. It's just a great show. There's tons of shows on there. Check it out, Vox.com. As always, you can follow me at Tuckered.podcast, TuckeredOutWithAmi.com. Guys, I just got back from Vegas and I am packing again to head to Austin for South by Southwest. A little bit of live podcasting coming your way. Thank you guys again for listening. This is Tuckered Out. Tuckered Out.